and that's Jesus. But now I've been dressed up like this. I look a bit crazy, don't I? I've been reshaped, been reinvented with different values uh, with each new addition. And I'm kind of like a game of Chinese whispers, you know? All through history, you good folk have been taken away from the real me. So if you don't mind, I might start stripping off some of my some of these clothes. <laughs> That's right. Don't worry, you won't get too uh, you know, crazy in here. This is a church service after all. But um I want to I want to start taking off some of these things. So firstly, I want to tell you I am not a fairy tale. I don't live on the North Pole. I don't have any elves. Actually, I was born in Asia Minor, which you might know today as Turkey. And I lived in a city by the sea called Myra. See, I'm a real person. I had a real life. And I was the bishop of that city. So I spent my time overseeing the Christian community there and, um, and trying to shine the light of the gospel to one and all. Secondly, I'm not an amusement, as much as I might look like one right now. Please take me seriously. The joy and the goodwill that I found and was able to pass on to others was not just a fun, flighty little bit of amusement. It was a deep joy that comes from finding peace with God, not some kind of passing sentimental whimsy. So please don't see me as an amusement. Also, (laughs) I am not a distraction from Jesus. It's a bit of an accident of history that I got connected to Christmas. Christians in medieval times, they had feast days in celebration of me on December the 6th. And that still happens in many countries in the world. But during the Reformation which for those of you who are regular, you would have learnt about that when we looked at Martin Luther, the Protestants, they got rid of all the saint stuff. They said, oh, let's throw out the feast days. But they secretly loved the St. Nicholas feast day because there was gift giving. And so what they did was they thought, let's get rid of that, but let's move it to Christmas Eve. And so from that point onwards, I somehow got thrown into the Christmas mix. But you know what? In some ways, I thought that was fine because um, my life has been a picture of Jesus and and a picture of his generosity, of God's generosity to others. And so, um, you know, please don't see me as a distraction from Jesus. I would would never want that to be um, the case in my life. As as I've said, it's all about um, being a picture of Jesus. All right. Good to get rid of that. Next thing I want to I remove is I am not about teaching your kids and your grandkids to be little narcissists, thinking only about what they can get. It seems that's what Santa is all about these days, to the point where, you know, my good friend Matt Jones is often trying to downplay these, these things to his daughter because all they think about is Christmas is about what I get. And in fact, Christmas is exactly the opposite. It's about what can I give to other people? And that's what my life's been about. 
So my, my real life was closer to what Jesus says in Matthew when he says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That's what I tried to follow. I am also not a mascot for the economy or for consumer culture. That's not me. And I'm not here to ask you to go shopping. In fact, as the gap between the rich and the poor in Australia continues to widen, I would encourage you to buy nothing this Christmas. Nothing frivolous, at least. Instead, give it to people who need it. Did you know that, at the moment, the top 20% of households in Australia get half of Australia's income? Okay, top 20 own half of Australia's money. The bottom 20%, they own 4% of the country's wealth. That's a pretty grim picture for Australia. We're fast losing our reputation as the land of the middle class, you know, the the, the egalitarian society that we um, have been. And that's thanks to income inequality. So we like to think that we're an egalitarian society But I think all that's under threat. And if the gap continues to widen, we will end up with entrenched pockets of haves and have-nots in our our, uh, communities. So irresponsible buying of things that we don't really need is hardly something to be celebrated at a time like this. All this spending goes on and yet we're neglecting the poor and the needy that could really do with our support. Hopefully you're getting a bit of a taste of the real St Nicholas. What do you think? Yeah? Good. All right, so now that I've got that misunderstanding out of the way and I can put my glasses on, (laughs) which is great, uh, let's look at the real St Nicholas. By the way, on the screen, there's a picture. Um, Some people um, at a university probably had nothing better to do and so they did some fancy scientific methods and uh, um, 3D modelling to find out what they thought St Nicholas really probably looked like and that's what they came up with. They still had to add the beard, of course, (laughs) but there you go. Now, um, when we look at the real St Nicholas, St Nicholas of Myra, um, there's a few historical challenges because there were no written documents or artefacts from him himself, from St. Nicholas himself. He wasn't a writer, he wasn't a scholar, he wasn't someone who wrote things down, or at least we don't have those those documents if there were there. Um, And so there's some difficulty in telling his story because we have to, I I really want to be able to determine whether those stories have a true historical backing. But the earliest writings about him um, come from about 200 years after his death. And his officially regarded dates are that he was born in 270 AD and that he died in 343 AD, okay? So we're talking early church, early church times. Um, And he lived, as I said, in Turkey. But if you look um, for the name Nicholas in the ancient world, so if if you're a scholar and you're, you're looking through all the different ancient documents, precious little can be found in those historical records before the 300s okay but then after the 300s that name became very popular 
And so it's obvious that there was a real St. Nicholas and that he had a major impact on, on society. Tradition tells us that St. Nicholas was born to wealthy parents. Um, but at an early age, his parents died during an epidemic, leaving him an orphan. He, he went on to become um, the Bishop of Myra, leading the church in that city, which was a port town. So you can see a little map. I don't know if you know your, um, your European geography, but um, Istanbul, back um, Constantinople up there, um, that's Turkey, and Myra's down the bottom, and it's a port town. So um, busy, buzzling, um, bustling port. All right. So he, he lived, um, where am I? Yes. So he's a, he's a bishop of Myra. Um, this was this time around, so for his time from 270 to 343, was actually a really significant time in the life of the church. Um, during his early years, um, the church went through one of the worst persecutions under the Roman emperor Diocletian in 284 and 85. And Nicholas is thought to have been imprisoned during that time um, and then released after Diocletian finished his rule. Shortly after that, in 306, Emperor Constantine took the throne and he's the first emperor of Rome to convert to Christianity. So with, with his conversion came a new religious tolerance for Christians. Um, and by 313, there was there was a thing called the Edict of Milan where it was, a, um, it was made official. Christianity is cool. Nobody should persecute the Christians. Um, there was also a, a famous council in 325 and St. Nicholas's name is, um, is on some of those lists, uh, that, the historical lists that suggest that he may have attended the Council of Nicaea. But the thing is that Nicholas's popularity back then and today don't really lie in these kind of little facts about history, but they lie in the stories that are told and retold about him. These stories paint a picture of a saint who is earthy, unpretentious, down-to-earth, a friend to one and all, um, regardless of their station in their life. He was not afraid to get messy in order to help people. And so he's celebrated as a friend of laborers, of sailors, of the lowly, of prisoners, of the desperate. And I think that's partly why his name has been remembered all through, um, through the many centuries that, that have passed, because of that, because he is a friend to the person who is otherwise forgotten. You may not realize this, but um, to this day, Nicholas is celebrated as the patron saint of sailors. Um, as a bishop of a bustling port city, and considering his reputation, which I've just mentioned, it's probably not surprising that um, the sailors loved him. Stories of, of Nicholas rescuing sailors or helping them out miraculously on the high seas uh, goes back to the earliest tales from his life that we can find. And in Greece, they sometimes, uh, when they paint pictures of Nicholas, they paint him with his clothes soaked in seawater and his beard dripping with seawater because of this association. So he's known as the, the guy who jumps into the ocean to rescue the sailors who are in peril. 
Dr. Adam English is a uh, historian, um, and he recently wrote this book, which is called The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, The True Life and Trials of Nicholas of Myra. And he was um, really trying to get back to what, who is this man really? Who, who was he originally? And he regards the best-known story of Nicholas to also be the one with the strongest case for a historical basis. Let me tell you that story now. All right. So this is kind of like the big story for, for St. Nicholas. Okay. There was a man who was once rich, but he had fallen on hard times. He'd become unwell and was no longer able to work. So now a poor man, he had three daughters and they were all of an age to be married. In those days, a young woman's family had to have something of value called a dowry to offer prospective bridegrooms. So the larger the, di- the dowry, the larger that gift was, um, the better the chance a young woman would find a good husband. And without a dowry, a woman was unlikely to marry at all. And this was actually a very desperate situation because without dowries, uh, women were often destined to be sold into slavery. So here's this family suffering in this condition. Word of the family's misfortune reached Nicholas. And Nicholas had wealth because although he was an orphan, he'd inherited uh, money from his parents. So what he did was he came in secret by night and he came to their house and he tossed a little bag of gold through the window and it sailed in, landing in a shoe left before the fire to dry. What joy in the morning for this family when the gold was discovered and the first daughter soon wed. Not long after, another bag of gold sailed through the window in the dead of night and um, appeared mysteriously in the middle, um, in the middle of their, their lounge room. And the, um, the second daughter was able to be married. The father, now very curious and anxious to know who this secret benefactor was, he thought, I'm going to stay up. I'm going to secretly hide in, in, this, you know, in the corner of, this, of, of our lounge and I'll, and I'll see him. I'll see who this person is. And sure enough, a third bag of gold landed inside the house and the watchful father leapt up and caught the fleeing donor. Ah, Nicholas, it is you, he cried. You've saved my daughters from certain disaster. Nicholas was embarrassed and not wishing to be known, he begged the man to keep his identity secret. You must thank God alone for providing these gifts in answer to your prayers for deliverance. Dr. English says that there's nothing exactly like this story from other saints in that time. At that time, the most popular saint stories were about martyrs who died in some horrendous way. Or there was also stories of rigorous monks who went out into the desert and, you know, denied themselves in heroic ways. That, that were the kinds of stories that were being told. But here was a story about Nicholas anonymously giving significant gifts to these three poor girls, girls who no one else in that era would have cared about. 
He's truly taking the biblical command to look out for the least among you to heart in a serious way. He does something that is purely generous and purely good for people who weren't the concern of society in that time. And he does it without any hope of reward. And that story, it lit up people's imagination. He becomes a gift giver and a provider to anyone in dire distress. So you're down to your last crust of bread and you're thinking all hope's gone. But you just watch the window because God in his generous provision just might send you a generous saint inspired by Nicholas to save you. Uh, as, we, um, as we move towards the, the end of, of our message today, I, I want to um, just, I guess, spend a bit of time thinking about what does the scriptures say about this kind of generosity that Nicholas exemplifies um, in, in that story especially and in his, in his whole life. Um, what, what does the scriptures say about generosity, about how we might be, um, become like him and how that might actually look a little bit like what Jesus was all about? So what I'm going to do is give you a bit of a whirlwind tour, um, looking at a few scriptures and just, um, I guess, drawing out this theme of generosity um, in the life of, um, for the life of Christians. Okay, so um, we, and they should be up on the, on the screen. So starting with the first one, uh, it's, which is actually from Leviticus. Um, you might not have read Leviticus lately. Le- Leviticus 25, 35 to 37. So after Israel was freed from Egypt, um, which was a mighty and generous act of God, God gave rules for the life for life to Israel. And this is what he said. He said, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who bought you, brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So because for Israelites, their whole identity was caught up with being recipients of God's generosity. I mean, he brought them out of slavery. Having, having done that and provided a land for them, they were to show impartial generosity to each other. Your neighbor's need was never to be capitalized upon for personal gain. So even in these early scriptures, we see this picture of what God wants for us. Psalm 41 begins by acknowledging that there's a covenant, there's a relationship that exists between God and the generous. God responds to the kindness and generosity of his people with protection, health, and abundance. This is what he says, the psalmist says, Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor. The Lord rescues them when they are in trouble. The Lord protects them and keeps them alive. He gives them prosperity in the land and rescues them from their enemies. The Lord nurses them when they are sick and restores them to health. So the key to living a life of generosity, it seems, is in having a heart that delights in the Lord. 
a shift happens in us when we're generous for God's sake. And we shed that inclination to indulge in materialistic fantasies. We, we realise that that's, that just doesn't matter anymore. And, and we become more generous people. Proverbs 11 says this. I, I believe that what it says here, by the way, um, really communicates a principle that's sewn into the fabric of the world we live in. It says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So those who give generously and freely sense that the world is an abundant place and that there's enough for everyone. And that kind of that becomes true for them, and, and it's, it is true. And those who hoard and store up for themselves tend to perceive the world as a place of scarcity and there's, there's not enough for everyone. And the more that you grasp and, ho- and hoard things, the more you think you need. And so your generosity actually defines your experience of life. That's something really to, to investigate, people. Uh, if, if God really has sewn that into the fabric of our, of our world, uh, that generosity creates in us a, a, a new knowledge of the world as an abundant place. Um, what a better life that is to live rather than a life of grasping and hoarding and feeling that there's not enough for, um, for everyone. Matthew six nineteen to 21 speaks of investing in a future treasure. And um, you can actually go to our podcasts and, and David preached a sermon on this not long ago. Um, in keeping with some of these Old Testament passages, Jesus challenges us with a choice. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal and where your treasure, um, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's basically saying you can accumulate stuff here which ultimately has no value, or you can use it in such a generous way that you're investing in God's kingdom. When we're generous with the things that come through our life, we are actually sending it ahead and we will be compensated. In Luke, uh, Jesus says this. um, He speaks of, of generosity coming not only in the form of giving money, but in, in other ways too. He says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others um, or it will all come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and pouring into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. So to withhold judgment, to withhold condemnation and unforgiveness, those are also generous acts. And in God's economy, it's rewarded with the same kind of benevolence, only it's pressed down, shaken together, and it runs over. So God's provision is always bigger for us. I also love the story in Luke of um, Jesus' enthusiasm 
about the generosity of, of a poor lady. He says this, he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So the beauty of this passage to me is is in Jesus' enthusiasm to point out this woman's uh, generosity to his disciples. To think that God gets excited um, when we're open-handed is is pretty inspiring. Just got a couple more to go. Um, so the, the next one's from Corinthians. Um, God doesn't want you to coer- um, doesn't want to coerce you to to be generous. So the generosity that we're called to it's it's not intended to be a burden. It's intended to create a fair and impartial culture. Here's what Second Corinthians nine says. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God's ultimate desire is that we would give happily. He doesn't want us to have to give out of obligation or coercion. He wants to bless us, but not so that we can live in complete comfort and luxury, but so rather that we can be even more generous, abounding in every good work. And lastly, uh, John, in his letter, um, 1 John, he he speaks about um, encouraging us to to see whether we're in the faith Um, he says this by this we may know that we are in him whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked so one important way that we do um, that we examine ourselves is by taking stock in whether our lives are beginning to take on the self-sacrificial and cruciform nature of jesus Are we giving of ourselves and our resources? It's a really good question to ask yourself in regards to your spiritual health. It's obvious that being conformed to the image of Christ includes imitating sacrificial and his his sacrificial and giving nature. We should be using our own generosity as that gauge of our own spiritual health. How open are we to give? And are we sacrificial in our giving? So there's a big picture for you of generosity. And there's St. Nicholas's challenge to you today. St. Nicholas of Myra, he's no fairy tale. He's no amusement. His example draws us to Christ and encourages us to live generously, sacrificially for the good of others, particularly those that have been forgotten by our society. We do this in gratitude and in anticipation for all that God has given us and continues to provide. So while it's a bit of an accident of history that Nicholas has this association with Christmas, I think it's perfect for us, this challenge is perfect for us at Christmas time as we head towards um, Christmas now and as we move into our time of Advent um, in the coming weeks. Um, 
this challenge is one that we should remember. We're now going to have a little bit of a time of response. So I encourage you to get your response cards out and, and get find the pencil that's that was on your chair. And um, these are the questions that I, I, I want to encourage you to, to look at. By the way, you don't have to, you know, go through them like a test and, and answer every question. Just think which of these questions stands out to me as something that I'd like to really ponder on in the next five minutes. So how does St. Nicholas's example reorient me towards generosity? Has what I've told you today, you know, from his life um, inspired you? Perhaps you'd like to uh, um, answer this question. How generous am I with my finances, my time, and with my heart, my heart towards others? Is God challenging me today to be more generous? What will I do in response? Always good when you're writing um, a response in this way to actually come up with something concrete as a response. That's a, that's a wonderful thing to do. And the last question here is, what can I refrain from doing this Christmas season to instead show generosity to the needy around me? So if, if um, St. Nicholas has, uh, has um, challenged you about what you normally do in your Christmas practice, perhaps there's something you can stop doing and instead um, give to the needy in some way or, or show some other act of generosity. So I'm going to leave you now for um, a little while and there's going to be some music and um, I encourage you to, to write in your response cards. As we sing our last song today, David will, will come around and collect those, those cards. Thanks.